1: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode in a special limited series of podcasts from the DSR network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Later this year, world leaders will gather in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts will look at the crucial issues to be discussed at COP28, from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts will feature elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convene to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables are hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing. We were very fortunate to have as the chairperson of our roundtable discussion, Alison Agston, the director of the USC Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication and curator at the Wrigley Institute for Environment and Sustainability. This panel, entitled Arts, Activism, and Combating Climate Change, explores the role that artists and activists play in the fight against climate change and the ways everyone can do their part to create a more green future. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation of COP28. However, it should be noted, for this, as for all DSR Network podcasts, All content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent chairpeople of these roundtables have been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions. Now, on to the discussion, the latest in our special series, The Road to COP28. We hope you will join us each and every week from now through COP28 to hear more unique perspectives on this vital event. And the issues to be discussed there. Thank you.
3: Let's talk about next that galvanizing um, that must be done. Who will do it? Who's really in for the long haul? And that's certainly people that are younger than me, for example. Kevin J. Patel, you've been working on this for a long time, Uh, even though you are, I might might say, significantly younger than me. I'd like to ask you. How we can help support young people, people younger than me, people even younger than my kids, getting through this. What kind of resources do they need uh, to do the work that is ahead from those of us who have come before?
4: It is a pleasure to be on this call, by the way. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, as a young person, um, you know, I started at the age of 11 or 12. I now am 23. Um, and I think one of the things, uh, being directly impacted by the climate crisis has, you know, really kind of galvanized me to be involved, um, and, and to really kind of work, uh, for my community. And so to answer your question on how we can support and galvanize the next generation, even, uh, my generation, uh, those who are already involved, um, I look at it in three frameworks um the first framework is that four percent or three percent of philanthropic funds goes to climate in general out of that percentage uh 0.76 percent goes to uh, youth-led organizations who are working on the climate crisis and a lot of that is like uh, climate campaigns and whatnot um out of that 0.76 percent Uh, 0.2% goes to youth-led organizations working to implement and accelerate climate solutions. So I think we need to really kind of see how we can move finances to youth-led organizations that are working around establishing um, and implementing and accelerating climate solutions while also um, making sure that there's youth representation within uh, within our governmental systems. Um, second is yeah, the uh representation of young people within uh climate spaces. I think a lot of spaces that I've been in, um, especially COP and uh, many other um high uh, high-level you know uh conferences and um just different different spaces that I'm in, I always often see a lack of young people, especially those who are affected from the global south, to be represented um and and to have a seat at the table. I think when you think about who can solve the climate crisis or who can really mitigate the climate crisis, who better uh, to be at um, the discussion than those who are affected, uh, given that we've walked um, not only being affected by this issue, but we also know the solutions to solve this issue. Um, And then, you know, I think, Third would be uh, how can we really, I, I want to touch on the piece uh, with what everyone has been saying is that I think oftentimes climate our climate movement and media has a carbon tunnel instead of having um, like an intersectional approach to seeing all of these issues. Obviously, we last year uh, in December 15 happened um, and, and that wasn't as big as, you know, uh, the regular COP's. Um, and so when we think about, like, the ways in which we're approaching uh, media, especially for young people um, and galvanizing young people, I think a lot of young people are really sick and tired of the, um, especially the ones that I talk to, are sick and tired of the domestic, you know, doom and gloom uh, media approach. Um, although it, it's one thing that we always see, it's always something that's on our news feeds, always on our IGs, our TikToks, everything, it's all doom and gloom. Um, we're seeing a narrative shift from young people really wanting to reimagine what, um, you know, what climate uh, looks like or even advocacy looks like around these issues. Um, and I always say these issues be- because I think again we can't always look at climate change as a one issue thing. It's a intersectional uh, issue, and and it intersects with so many other injustices happening to communities. Um, and so I think that's how young people are looking at this. Um, and I think um you know, so those are just my uh, broad points on like the ways in which to really galvanize young people. Obviously, uh, one way that I've been able to really kind of make sure that we uh, touch on uh, point two on youth representation within government, you know, uh, it's not that hard. I think a lot of young people are really passionate and involved being involved. And uh, a case study to be used is here in LA County. Um, You know, I was able to really advocate for the first ever uh, Youth Climate Commission within LA County becoming the first ever in the world, first ever in the nation to really have youth representation on not only giving recommendations on policy for our supervisors, but also making sure that we can look at past policies that affect our communities. And I think that's just one way of really galvanizing young people um, and making sure that they're involved and supported, uh, not only on their ideas or solutions um, and whatnot. And I think also being supported by the scientific community is another way um, you know, I think we talked about the National Climate Assessment, another assessment that was just released, um, you know, a lot of my work is on in forest mitigation and restoration, um, sorry, uh, forest like uh, protection, restoration and conservation. Um, Crother Labs just released their integrated climate forest assessment, uh, which is, uh, you know, research that's been published in the uh, Journal of uh, Nature that sh- shows realistic global forest carbon potential, which is approximately 22 Six gigatons of carbon um, and the, the potential uh, forests having captured 2.2 uh, 226 uh, gigatons of carbon in areas where they would naturally exist and um, how you know we have to really kind of look at um, forests in a different light. Um, and so I think if anyone hasn't checked out that assessment I would definitely do it it's an integrated global forest assessment. Um, by Crother Labs and uh, many other scientists uh, around the world who worked on that. Um, and so I think another thing that I would touch on, because I know I'm, I have the youth mic right now, so um, is that obviously youth are here, they're, they're ready to go, and many of them are just wanting to be supported via funding, via representation, supported by the scientific community and learning the ways in which, you know, what are the actual solutions that would get us to the mark. Um, Obviously, we have Cradle to Cradle, we have uh, Speed to Scale, we have uh, Project Drawdown, Regeneration, all these frameworks that are out there on solutions, I think what we look towards is how can we really kind of have radical collaboration to really kind of get these solutions off the ground instead of a lot of the noise that uh, tends to happen. Um, And then I think this whole podcast was around what is the, the road to COP28. Um, I think a lot of young people um, saw in COP27 the establishment of the Loss and Damage Fund. Um, And I think that's a a highlight from COP27. But I think one of the things that young people would love to see is how can we really kind of have more pressure put on uh, Western countries and the global global north to really kind of make sure that climate vulnerable communities um, get the support that they need, given that this establishment of the Loss and Damage Fund has yet to, you know, none of the uh, money has gone to uh, climate vulnerable co- uh, communities and countries. Um, and so, um, yeah, uh, th- those are just my thoughts.
3: Well, three cheers for radical collaboration. Rosanna, I know you have something that you really want to say about this.
5: Yeah, and just, you know, thank you, Kevin, and just building on what Kevin just said about intersectionality and representation. And I, I love that term radical collaboration kind of in these conversations. And also what you, Allison, and, you know, Eliza were just saying, you know, also really resonated with me about, you know, giving voice to more stories and how people have been observing and connecting to climate change through these, you know, deeply personal stories and observations of change and loss. And this is all kind of making me reflect on how, you know, something that really clarified for me these past few years as I went on this journey of going from like a journalist writing day-to-day-to-day news reports about climate change To turning these news reports into like writing an entire book about this issue and realizing that we can't write about climate change in a vacuum. And, you know, that process of writing a book really pushed me to make sure that, you know, I wasn't just making sure everyone was at the table and then everyone from all sides got to say something and really share their perspectives. It was also really expanding and thinking about who belongs at the table that doesn't even realize they're. that they should be at the table, that, you know, that they do have a voice in this conversation and actively as a writer, as a storyteller, as a communicator to go above and beyond to bring those people to this conversation and to not just make sure that I checked off the list on like, did I talk to everyone on all sides? And so, for example, you know, I would enter a lot of these communities in California that would be defined, you know, as an environmental justice community and i come in being like the bumbling reporter who wants to talk about climate change and i will talk to church leaders and other community activists and they want to talk about the fact that every kid in their community seems to get asthma by the time they're in 4th grade they want to talk about that the fact that they experience and suffer from higher rates of cancer than compared to the community literally one exit down from the highway they want to talk about having more parks and green space in their community and jobs and you know how much of it is our job as climate communicators and climate storytellers to start bridging these conversations and recognizing that jobs, solving asthma rates and cancer rates and bringing more park space and green space to a a community that truly is lacking any access to nature, these are all climate change conversations and these communities belong to these conversations. And, you know, how do these communities become environmental justice communities and underserved communities and overlooked communities? I mean, Another thing that really came into clarity for me is just that, you know, as we write about climate change, it's really important to understand that our social history is inseparable from our land use history. I mean, you know, just for example, the the history of redlining in this country and how we use land, especially post-settlement, is truly environmental history. And we must actually go deep on kind of all these patterns, social economic political um in terms of just like understanding how we got here in order to actually understand how we can move into the future and how we avoid perpetuating and kind of leaning into and like reinforcing these systems that truly got us into these predicaments in the first place. So um, I, I really connected with what Kevin just said. And I think we do need to bring, we need to think about not only making sure that everyone at the table has a chance to speak, but that we all have a job and responsibility to make sure that more people are being brought to this table because everyone has a say in this issue.
3: One of the hardest things about doing this and we're not sitting around the same table is reading the energy of a room because we're all on zoom but when rosanna was talking i could feel you each of you in the audience shaking your head and saying yes and like uh i could feel it in your hearts that we are all beginning to think about not only this sort of checkbox style of storytelling where we are sure that we include everybody we need to include so that we don't get in trouble somehow, but that these people, uh, that the richness of their lives and experiences are reflected. Uh, I talk often about recalibrating expertise, who gets to be an expert. I think those are all really important factors, and maybe this is a good way to bring Emily O'Brien into the conversation. I saw you nodding your head, and you work closely with the film business uh, in the film industry. So I'm wondering if you um, could share your thoughts on this.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Allison, and uh, thank you, everyone. It's it's truly an honor to be here today. Um, yeah, I just want to echo first of all all the sentiments shared around the importance of storytelling in this space. I think there's a real responsibility of the media and entertainment sector to um, sort of humanize the science in a way, if you will, to really reach those broader audiences. So I couldn't agree more. And in my role in particular, what I'm actually looking at is the decarbonization of the media and entertainment sector. Um, so I also uh, share good news, share some optimistic uh, uh, points, which is that the industry is really making strides on this. Um, in a lot of ways, whether that's at the studio level or the individual production level or broadcasters. Um, there's sort of rapid decarbonization work happening in this space, which I'm really I'm really thrilled to be a part of. And I wanted to also shed light on an initiative that has been growing now for the course of three years. Um, it's actually a sectoral initiative um, that we've been working on with the UNFCCC, uh, called ECA, and that stands for Entertainment and Culture for Climate Action. Um, and so there will actually, at COP28 this year, there will actually be a entire dedicated pavilion on entertainment and culture um, at the Blue Zone, um, the first time at COP, that there will be a sort of home for this um, particular topic. And so many partner organizations have already joined alongside it. I think there's over 190 thus far um, and a lot of great discussions and work that's going to be happening um, at COP, specifically in this space, which I think is really important. You know, there's a lot of ministers of culture around the world, too, who are galvanizing to make sure that, uh, you know, the the cultural considerations around climate solutions are put on the agenda um, at the negotiating tables during these discussions, Um, that climate isn't just framed as, an environmental issue, a financial issue, a scientific issue, but it's it's certainly a, a cultural one as well. Um, so that's the biggest thing that I wanted um, to share today, that there, there is hope. There's many, many stakeholders coming together um, across media and entertainment and globally as well. There's a really concerted effort to bring in the Global South into these conversations, certainly as the content uh, the demand for content is rising, and the industry is rapidly globalizing. This is going to be a really important um, way that we need to factor in um, our decarbonization goals and and bringing everyone with us, so that ideally we can sort of leapfrog these solutions, right? For like unified as a sector on these common goals then we can sort of get further faster together um, is is the idea behind that. So um just wanted everyone to be aware of that. And if you're going to be at COP28 to come check out the Entertainment and Culture Pavilion. Um, Cause there's going to be some really great thought leaders and uh and topics discussed there this year.
3: That is really exciting to know. Thank you for sharing that. Amy Todd Middleton is from the Environmental Defense Fund. And maybe your perspective is different than some of the others that have been shared here. I know EDF focuses on about 10 different areas. Uh, One of them is flooding, for example. That's the one I'm thinking about off the top of my head. I'm wondering which of your focus areas, Amy, you think are not um, getting enough play in the communication sphere, whether it's entertainment or news. What should we be thinking more about that you're thinking about?
7: Oh boy, that's a that's a big question. Um and thank you for having me here today. Um yeah, our work's a little bit different at Environmental Defense Fund. Um we really sit at the intersection of science, advocacy, policy, and economics and try to look at um the seemingly intractable challenges of climate change through all of those lenses as we're exploring solutions to implement. And we're an organization that needs to walk that bright line of centricity, um, which is becoming increasingly challenging to get things done, um, as David mentioned earlier, in an in increasingly geopoliticized universe. And I think a lot of our issues really lack the political durability of um, different uh, administrations coming into the, to the fray. And, various countries. Um, We really work on a couple of different things. Our our goal is to stabilize the climate, um, strengthen people and nature's ability to thrive and support people's health. And we do that really through our portfolio in energy transition, um, food and water, uh, global clean air, and safer chemicals, which uh, are all somewhat interrelated to one another. So we try to look at the intersectionality of our work. So our work, can, on the one hand, can be a little wonky and a little dry, and that's really critically important for certain audiences um, when we're reaching out to other scientists or policymakers. Um, but we also have to be able to speak to the emotional aspects of our of our story, right? And I think our philosophy is sort of the world, the future is going to be different, but who's to say that can't be better? And We do not want to pander to the dystopian hellscape that is out there, right? Like we have talked a lot today about this, thinking about how everyday people live. People consider climate change at the very local level. How's it impacting me, my family, my community? So do what you need to do to preserve the integrity of the things that you love in everyday life. If you love fishing, figure out how to way to, to keep fishing it, you know, all the things, um, So, so we have to really walk this tightrope of like telling different types of stories. Um, And we build a lot of creative platforms on our own and would love to partner with more of you guys to help shape some of those stories from a scientific perspective and, and bringing some data into the equation. Um, We have lots of access to, you know, the, the beneficiaries of positive solutions that have been implemented on climate change and, and equal access, as you guys know, to, lots of people that are in the middle of this without solutions on the table at the moment. Um, And I would say that the media is both uh, a a friend and a complicated challenge for us because there's um, very often stories can be reported without enough research that there's a temptation just to sort of pander to the... um, the narrative that's going to be most uh, most of the public is going to be excited about, um, but there's very often multiple complicated dynamics to that and getting enough time to be able to, to develop the relationships with the media so that we're able to help shape those stories and help them understand the very complicated realities of different pieces of this while also making them simple and digestible. Um, so... You know, going into the COP, for example, it's always hard for 194 countries to agree on something that has enduring legal outcome. Um, There are some greenwashing announcements that are invariably made around the COP, big commitments and pledges that never come to fruition and don't have a lot of substance to them. And, you know, we're not going to prejudge the COP. We'll judge the COP when it's over and thinking about some of the outcomes that we're hoping to achieve. But we we really want to work with the media at COP to look at some of the commitments and help sort of parse through them, which ones are real, which ones are not. This COP does, despite what everybody's saying, have the potential for some really exciting progress and momentum on really key issues such as methane and methane reduction, which I think Michael was saying earlier is, you know, the fastest, most effective, most affordable way to slow warming right now. Um, so. We we really want to um, work with the media to make sure that those stories are told in responsible and thorough ways.
3: Joshua Goldstein, you wrote a book on nuclear energy that was turned into the uh, Oliver Stone film Nuclear Now. As we talk about solutions, I'm wondering if you think it is safe for us to bet on. Just one.
8: No, it's. I don't think it is. But I think there's a deeper issue that I'm reacting to with all all of you journalists. And I'm I'm a professor. I'm not a journalist. Um, When you tell stories, you can get audiences, but you have a responsibility to get the big picture right. And the trouble with relying so heavily on uh, compelling stories is that you can miss the bigger picture. And for example, a lot of the climate reporting has to do with the United States and all the things that are being done in the United States to decarbonize, and um, it's it's missing the bigger picture that the problem's not going to be solved in the United States. Most of it is going to happen in Asia, especially China, India, you know, Indonesia. These big countries that are just getting going. People really want energy. So when I was thinking about it, it in a story way. I put solar panels on my roof 20 years ago, and I started driving electric cars way back then, and all that. Um, and so, that's fine at the at the small level, but I'm a data person, and when I looked at the global data about climate change, well, that's when I became a climate alarmist myself. You know, like it's, it's much worse than people think. The solutions are not adding up. And they add up, you know, in one little place, it may add up and make a good story. But when you look globally, it's not adding up. And that's when I changed my mind about nuclear power, which I was always against, and realized that, oh, boy, we're going to need it. We're going to need all the nuclear power we can build, as well as all the advanced geothermal, the carbon capture, all the solar wind and all the popular stuff, but also a lot of things that are either not popular, and nuclear is still not all that popular. Um, and that you have to look at the big picture because it's a global problem. What one community does is not going to affect the outcomes for that community. Also, that um, personal actions are not adequate. It makes a good story, but um, you need policies at a big level. Um, and, and you focus, like with nuclear power, there's all this uh, focus on the Vogtle plant in Georgia that just opened. And it was a fiasco, you know, financially, way over budget, behind schedule, etc. But meanwhile, China is building nuclear power plants, putting them on the grid every three or four months, building on time, on budget. There are a lot of places that are are doing that. South Korea, for instance. Um, so when when you focus on just one thing, if you don't like nuclear power, you can sure find stories that make it look bad. Or if you don't like um, cutting down forests to build solar arrays. You can focus on that. But somehow, and I don't know the answer to this, but there has to be a way to have the journalistic instinct to go for a good story. And absolutely, that's what the brain is is programmed for, to look for, um, has to work with the overall big picture, the data. It's been a problem with climate change generally, and, and certainly it is with nuclear power.
3: We definitely need so much more data reporting that I I could not agree with more strongly. And also I want to briefly say that, that something that I observe when I talk to journalists and big part of my job is providing support and training to journalists who want to start covering climate but that aren't covering it now is that newsrooms are really struggling right now. And it is so hard to even have the money to cover the local climate story. And it's really, really hard to cover the climate story halfway around the world that you don't know personally, that you don't have a source in. I get very dismayed about the way climate change is visualized in the media often, but I have to be realistic that, uh, you know, not a lot of news organizations can afford to hire a photographer in the Arctic. And as a result, we get these stock images of polar bears. Um, as you say, there's there's not an easy answer to this. I think, Olivia, you might be the last person that I haven't had a, a chance to talk to yet. Olivia Annaman is a documentarian. And I'm wondering if you can add anything to what Joshua Goldstein just mentioned about how we're telling these stories and maybe where we're falling short or where we're succeeding.
9: Um, Hi, everyone. It's so nice to be here. And thank you for this really awesome conversation today. Um, I think as I've been listening to everybody, too, and thinking of my own storytelling as a documentary producer and mostly working in the feature length space, which is 90, around 90 minutes, um, and recognizing the challenges of... Of that format Um, and really thinking about storytelling and, and creating it in ways that meet people where they're consuming their media. Not everybody has. 90 minutes to sit down and watch a full-length documentary. They're very, it's a tricky length in school systems to get teachers to teach and to put enough um, classroom time aside. So we're often cutting down or creating segments that can be taught in um, schools um not everyone has subscriptions money to have subscriptions to multiple media platforms you know monthly the monthly cost of Netflix and Hulu and Disney and these other places where we often as filmmakers are striving to have our films you know premiere and and show so how do we uh, and I don't have the solution. I'm still in this 90-minute space. Um, but I do think that's something that, as storytellers, we need to look at um, and also to build on what Kevin said around where young people are consuming their media, too. So. And there are challenges in that. 90 minutes, a long form story, either in writing or in um, film, give you the space to look into these issues deeply, to get the data right, to present the information. How do we do that responsibly as storytellers in shorter form um, that people might be, you know, consuming um, in five minutes or 30 seconds or much different links. So I I th- I think um collectively as all of us are in the media, like how do we really meet people where they are consuming their stories? Um I do agree with um and have a also a lot of lot to um say about the importance of connecting with personal stories and with people who are experiencing the impacts of climate change in their own lives and in their own communities. Those people are their own experts of what's happening in their, um, you know, where they live. Um, So I do think that's an important piece of it too, is really um, celebrating uh, those, you know, those personal stories as well. But agree with Joshua, on how you get the data right and how you present the larger picture and how do you do that in the time restraints or page restraints that we're all under um, from, you know, getting them getting the media out there?
3: If this was easy, we would all have been telling perfect climate stories for a long time, I suppose. I am seeing so many hands raised. We have 15 minutes. I'm having some of that podcast hostess anxiety about it because, for example, Michael Mann has had his hand raised since time memorial. immemorial. He's had his hand raised for a long time. Okay. Um, but Anna Jane Joyner, you have something you really want to say about this. Then Michael, then Matt, and we'll see if we can get everybody in. Um, Awesome. I'll try to be really quick, um, quick thoughts just in response to some of the really
10: amazing conversations. And also thank you to you and your team for making space for this conversation because we don't talk about narrative and media and storytelling enough when it comes to climate, which... um, I think to sum up on the narrative strategy in general, like something we've encountered working with creatives and storytellers is that the dichotomy between hope versus doom is actually very unhelpful. One, because hope isn't always the motivating factor for audiences. Like there's really interesting research coming out of, um, I think it's Norway now, that people who in their study who felt anger were as their primary emotion when they thought of climate were 7 times more likely to take action than people who felt hope as their first primary um, emotion. So I think just looking at the nuances of different kinds of stories, different kinds of emotional impact, different kinds of audiences is really, really important. Just like there's no solution silver bucket, there's no storytelling silver bullet. We need a huge range and menu of different kinds of stories and storytellers to get this right. We also have to be okay with the fact that like some people are going to tell stories that don't resonate with us or that we don't agree with, but that's actually a good sign. Um, and then I also just wanted to mention that like the way and this is probably particular to the audience that we work with which is screenwriters and creative executives um but we have to really intentionally not be prescriptive when we come in and start talking about climate related stories just because we do we do a, a lot of qualitative research so we've talked to hundreds of TV and film writers at this point uh, about what resonates with them, what their hurdles are. And a big one is if you come in and say you can only tell hopeful stories or you can only tell any kind of X, Y, and Z story, that's a great way to turn off nine out of 10 writers because uh, nobody wants to be told how to do their job. Um, and and so we really try to make space for uh, climate storytelling conversations that are liberating, that talk about the creative opportunity, and not uh, coming in from like a demand, like you have to do it a certain way or not do it a certain way. Um, so those are my thoughts on narrative. Real quick on funding, I just want to emphasize that there's so little funding, not only going to storytelling but strategic communications in general, which is a giant gap in the climate. Uh, movement because you know for example uh the oil industry has been in Hollywood has has invested hundreds of millions of dollars into lobbying Hollywood to create the narrative that uh prosperity equals fossil fuels for over a century they've been in Hollywood since the 1930s the Department of Defense has had a Hollywood outreach program uh, for over a century so this is, Just one example of a space for storytelling comms that's very underinvested in. I think you know your experience uh, in journalism is similar, uh, and I just wanted to point that out.
3: Here, here, uh, and Amy Todd Middleton just you know breaking news in our chat to say that Governor Newsom's office just confirmed that he's not going to cop. Those of you in this room or listening may have read the news that his approval ratings have certainly sunk lately. in part because of his recent travels, his time away from home. But let's now go to Michael Mann. I want to hear what Mike, I want to hear anything Michael Mann has to say about anything related to climate.
2: Oh, that's very kind of you. Uh, Thanks. Uh, I wanted to touch on a number of different threads. I'll try to do it briefly, um, threads that have emerged during the conversation today. Uh, The the first one is sort of um, this discussion of uh, doomism, uh, alarmism, um, you know, alarmism is an interesting term, it can be misused. I think uh, there are people who've tried to sort of reown that term, as you know, essentially meaning alarmed. And, and one of the things that I like to say about that is, you know, alarmism might not be helpful, because alarmism to the public means false alarm, it means henny penny but being alarmed is certainly appropriate uh we should be alarmed it's an important distinction righteous anger um and and, and that was something that was just uh, touched upon here by anna um is you know a very um it is an empowering emotion there're studies that show that i distinguish between doomism and and, and sort of righteous anger righteous anger you know, the polling, uh, George Mason, Yale uh, polling shows that 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 can be empowering. But doomism can often take us down sort of this path of despair and inaction. And so I think we we do have to be careful about our wording and our framing there and distinguishing uh, between these different emotions. Um, Gratuitous uh, mention of my book uh, just out uh, last month, The Uh, our fragile moment, which is about the lessons we can learn from the past uh, about the climate crisis today. And one of those lessons is that um, there are a number of false narratives out there that in fact are derived, for example, from past geological extinction events this idea that they were driven by runaway, uh, methane, uh, driven warming and, and that's underway today and there's nothing we can do about it. And so we are all going to go extinct, no matter what we do. There are narratives like, uh, like that that are out there right now that, uh, I find very unhelpful because they actually misrepresent the scientific evidence in service of a narrative of sort of doom and despair. Um, I should mention that, uh, I, uh, also have an affiliation with the other Annenberg uh, Center for Communication, the Annenberg School for Communication here at Penn, where I direct a center for science sustainability in the media. And so I sort of occupy both of those lanes. Yes, I'm a scientist um, and I communicate in that context, but we're also very interested in studying public opinion and, and finding out, uh, again, what sort of works uh, from a communication standpoint, what doesn't. Um, I did want to say something about COP26 um, since you know, this is nominally what this conversation is about today. There were a number of very thoughtful uh, points that have been raised here, and 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 one that I do want to mention is sort of um, you know uh, loss and damage. There's been real progress when it comes to loss and damage, and and that's really important. Um, you know, we are going to ad- have to adapt to those climate affects those climate impacts that are baked in. Um, and, And we need to provide resources to those who have the least resilience and wealth to deal with that. And so that's absolutely critical. But we cannot adapt to the climate impacts we will see if we fail to mitigate, if we fail to dramatically lower our carbon emissions. So to me, what was so important about The sort of the progress at COP27 on loss and damage is that it hopefully paves the way to, you know, convince countries like India um, that were rightfully sort of obstinate uh, when the rest of the world, when the industrial countries were unwilling to pony up with the funding that we had provided to developing countries, it's sort of fair for them to say, look, you had two centuries of you know access to cheap dirty energy to grow your economy why we shouldn't we have the same if you're not doing everything you can uh, to help us out and so loss and damage was a critical development from my standpoint because hopefully it paves the way now to get some of those you know to get the indias of the world um uh, committed to to dramatically reducing their own carbon emissions to decarbonizing to, as somebody said, leapfrogging past the fossil fuel stage um, to develop clean energy infrastructure. We need to help them do that. So my cautious optimism about COP28 is that we made some progress at COP27, not so much on mitigation, but on loss and damage. And maybe that provides an opportunity for progress now on reducing carbon emissions, because that's what we've got to do. And we've got to do it quickly, and the reports out today drive that home.
3: Loss and damage has been mentioned a couple of times here, certainly in the circles that I run in, which are probably intersecting with the circles that you all are in. That's um, something really big that many folks are looking at for this upcoming COP28 is the progress on loss and damage. Matt Simon, what do you have to say?
0: Yeah, sure. Hello again. Um, thank you. And yes, echoing loss and damage as well. Uh, my colleague, Greg, Marple wrote about that for the last cop. Um, I suggest checking out that story. Um, it, it, that kind of ties into a couple of things that I wanted to mention in case it's useful things that actually work really well for us as far as stories are concerned. Uh, scientific adventure stories. So especially like scientists going to Antarctica, dragging a ground penetrating radar on a sled, like this individual scientist in the middle of Antarctica. It's the, these sorts of stories people love because it it, um, it kind of breaks through this silly stereotype that scientists are these uh, robotic data gathering machines uh, when they're people doing really cool stuff. Um, so that that sort of story tends to do well for us. I think at Wired we have this mandate to to get at what are seemingly these esoteric um, scientific uh, stories of, about these I what I think are these really interesting things in climate science. Uh, We also find, uh, this is gonna sound very strange, any story we do about putting solar panels places you would not expect do very well for us. So putting solar panels over canals uh, to cover the water, reduce evaporation, you save water and generate energy. Uh, And this brings me to something that I I really hope takes center stage at this COP, which is cities. So cities as not only this place where you can put solar panels everywhere on roofs, But you can grow crops uh, in cities under solar panels. That increases the efficiency of the panels, gets you food, free energy, um, all this sort of co-benefits. I really hope this is this is going to come out of COP that cities are yes problematic from an an emissions standpoint, um, but they're actually these really huge, I think, underutilized tools for climate action. You can bolster public transportation, um, green up urban spaces, and reduce the urban heat island effect. Um, so cities as have these, uh, these, these problems, but as the populations in these urban areas grow, um, a way to bring more of these people into the climate fight um, and ideally putting solar panels in more weird places that I can report on, because I, for some reason, love doing this sort of thing.
3: I am living for these stories about what works for you. As I said, I'll reach out to the Climate Brain Trust Uh, later and gather some more of your information that I can share out. I have also been tracking the rise in um, climate reporting in general. Um, What I mean by that is how many folks are currently writing about it versus how many were writing and editing stories about it last year. And I think Uh, I'll share that information soon with uh, some of your anecdotes about what's working, what's not make a little report out of it. Uh, Kate, a maker of really uh, rigorously researched reports. Do you have something you want to say briefly before Layla closes it down for us?
11: Yeah, I just um, thanks. This has been really a great conversation, and I I totally want to connect with everybody um, to continue the conversation. I was just going to pick up on a couple of threads. One of which that I mentioned in the beginning, we started out working around um, depictions of health in general with the entertainment industry, and of course, climate change is. Health is a way in to talk about climate change now and more so than ever before. And I uh, some of you that are journalists um, talked about, you know, writing stories that where the the, the people in the community want to talk about why are why do all my kids have asthma? It's a great way to get into talking about climate change. And we've done that a lot with current TV shows Um Someone else mentioned about, you know, meeting people where they are, where they're already consuming store the stories. And that's exactly our method, is that rather than create content, which we need as well, new content to, to garner an audience, but we go, where is the audience on Wednesday nights? Oh, they're all watching Modern Family. Okay, let's go talk to Modern Family, you know, or whatever the show is. That's the way that we work in terms of our outreach. And um, it's been incredibly successful. And we've learned things. Shows like Madam Secretary, which is no longer on, was a show about a female Secretary of State. So it was very international. And the climate change stories that we did with Madam Secretary were international stories. They did, had an island such as Vanuatu that was being, uh, you know, sea level rise was going to take the whole island out, and they had to deal with moving those people to live somewhere else. So it was a very international story. And we looked at audiences and how they resonated with that and what they did afterwards and Google searches and so forth. So um, I'm just sort of pulling out a few little things. I think this conversation has been amazing. Um, We're at your service for research and outreach anytime. And um, I hope we can continue to do this. Thank you for letting me be part of it.
3: Layla, do you have final words that you can Uh, share with us? I, I guess so.
12: I think basically, I think we have all touched on this, but climate is really a human story and we have to broaden it to a world that works and it's basically we're living through the defossilization of our economies and lives. And if we broaden it also, I think people are more attracted to a pathway to the hero story And to a more global, systemic look at a world that works. And I think the doom scrolling, you know, I remember, you know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, the doom scrolling that was on Twitter for the last, you know, last summer with all the fires was so intense that um, I had to, like, not do that anymore, you know. And I think that we know it's happening. I think enough people know it's happening. The small towns know what's happening. Let's just now pave the way. Give everyone tools give everyone something they can do, and off we go. That's what I think.
3: Guess what? We're right on time, 10.30. I can't thank everybody enough for this incredible conversation. I have so enjoyed having each and every one of you here, and I've uh, enjoyed seeing the chat that we should all connect over email. So maybe we can do that soon. You'll definitely hear from me. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Fight on.
1: This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, hosts of the COP28 meetings to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent, and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris Cotmore. The producer of this podcast was Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR
8: Network production.